Good evening. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, and this is the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. Each week I'll be playing stripped-down, deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, highlighting different instruments and vocals in a way that will truly amaze you. Imagine sitting in the control room at EMI Studios and having the opportunity to peel away the layers of a song, discovering new elements that you never knew existed. This is the closest you can get to that experience. So sit back, tune in, and enjoy the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'll make you maybe next time around. Tonight we're going to return to EMI Studio 2 for Volume 4 of the Beatles' recording sessions. The fifth song recorded during the Beatles' marathon session on February 11, 1963, for their debut LP, Please Please Me, was originally offered to another singer to record. Although Lennon and McCartney had no track record for writing hit songs in January 1963, Brian Epstein pushed his boys to write songs for other artists, seeing the financial and promotional advantage of having established artists record their songs. This led them to compose Misery, which was started backstage at the King's Hall before a show on January 26, 1963, and finished at McCartney's Fourthland Road home soon after. It was originally written for 16-year-old British singer Helen Shapiro, who was headlining the group's first package tour that month. But the song was turned down by her recording manager, Nori Paramore, without her ever having heard it. McCartney recalled in a 1988 interview, It may not have been that successful for her because it's rather a downbeat song. The world is treating me bad, misery. It was quite pessimistic. In 1963, however, he felt differently about the possibility of Shapiro covering it. We've been asked by Nori Paramore to write a song for Helen Shapiro for her to record in Nashville. We've called it Misery, but it isn't as slow as it sounds. Moves along at quite a pace, and we think Helen will make a pretty good job of it. Apparently, Paramore felt differently. Although Shapiro never recorded the song, another performer on that tour would. Kenny Lynch had a minor hit with the tune, making it the first song written by Lennon and McCartney to be recorded by another act. This would become commonplace within the next few months of 1963. Misery marks the first of many times that George Martin would perform on a track. He used a trick that he had been using for years for the piano overdub. He called it the wind-up piano, and it was achieved by recording the piano at half speed. The sound of the sped-up piano is one of the first production innovations heard on a Beatles record. We would hear this sound again on A Hard Day's Night, In My Life, Lovely Rita, Rocky Raccoon, You Never Give Me Your Money, and others. Martin's lack of rock and roll experience proved to be quite useful. By using methods from his past production experience, he would influence the Beatles' ideas of what could be done on a pop record and would continue to bring a new sound to rock music throughout the 60s. Interestingly, the release take, Take 11, has a much simpler drum part than was heard in previous takes. Take 1 had drum fills at the end that answer the vocal line, similar to There's a Place. Take 6 goes one further by doing the same thing in the bridge. Apparently someone, most probably McCartney, thought that a straighter beat would suit the song better. This shows incredible restraint on Ringo's part, being that while the fills in the bridge seem a bit like overkill, the fills on the outro add a fire that takes seven and the release take take eleven lack. Lennon and McCartney tackle the vocal together, predominantly in unison, only harmonizing in thirds on the title each time it comes around. This is an anomaly in the Beatles' early 1963 work, holding the distinction of being the song with the least amount of harmony on Please Please Me and its related singles. Although with the Beatles would feature four songs sung solo, At this point, every song recorded featured harmony or background vocals, and although Misery does contain harmonized vocals, they're quite brief in duration. 
This song also includes the first occurrence of the use of the SH sound instead of the S in the line, Shender Back to Me. Engineer Jeff Emmerich commented on this in his 2007 book, Here, There, and Everywhere, My Life Recording the Music of the Beatles. As I listened to the playbacks of Misery that afternoon, I was also struck by the way John and Paul sang the word send as shend. Changing an S to an SH was an affectation on some American records, so it helped the Beatles sound more like their musical idols, plus it removed any potential DSing problem, where if there was too much top end, the sound on vinyl would distort. That was a great little vocal trick. In their first American press conference, McCartney was asked why they sound American when they sing, but English when they speak, and he responded, it's a Liverpool accent. Misery was placed in a rather important spot on the Beatles' debut LP, following the opener I saw her standing there. Therefore, it's curious to note that the song didn't have much of an impact, especially since it was found on four separate releases in America by VJ Records in 1964. It was even the first song on an EP released on March 23, 64, entitled Souvenir to Their Visit to America. Capitol Records passed over this song and There's a Place when they released the LP The Early Beatles on March 22, 1965, although it did appear as the B-side to Roll Over Beethoven, an October 11, 1965 single release on Capitol Records' short-lived Starline budget series. The song would remain out of print in the U.S. for the next 15 years until its inclusion on Capitol's Rarities LP, released on March 24, 1980. Although they performed the song seven times on the BBC and played it in live performances throughout 1963, Misery still remains an often-forgotten Lennon and McCartney original that blends a sad lyric with a cheery tune, demonstrating a cheekiness that would propel them to worldwide stardom in less than a year. Tonight, we'll hear takes one through eight. Misery, take one. The world is treating me bad, misery. I'm the kind of guy I'm the kind of guy 
Less than a month after the band finished recording their debut album, they returned to EMI Studio 2 to record their third single, From Me to You, Backed with Thank You Girl. Originally considered for the A-side, Thank You Girl is an often neglected Beatles track. Another early song written head-to-head, it was composed during February of 63 as the band continued the Helen Shapiro tour. At this point, the singles were definitely written with the fans in mind, hence the title. McCartney elaborated in a 1988 interview. We knew that if we wrote a song called Thank You Girl, that a lot of the girls who wrote us fan letters would take it as a genuine thank you. So a lot of our songs were directly addressed to the fans. After From Me To You was completed, the group recorded six takes of Thank You Girl, although only four were complete. Initially, they didn't return to the two-bar instrumental intro after the bridge or before the outro, preferring to jump right into the vocal OO line. After the first take, the two-bar build was added in both places, giving Starr two additional spots to add his heavy floor tom eighth notes and breaking up the repetitiveness of the group. This would prove to be a good decision, leaving space for Lennon's signature harmonica and creating an interesting instrumental contrast to the rest of the song. Although the drumming is relatively straightforward on this track, there are a few interesting elements to it. First is the use of the floor tom in the intro section, which adds a weight to the drum track that had not been heard before on prior Beatles recordings, and is a definite precursor to the heavier drum sounds of the late 60s and 70s, and the drum sound of their next single, She Loves You. The use of floor tom rather than hi-hat or cymbal for the pulse was rarely heard in pop music in the early 60s, and Starr definitely brought this sound to the forefront, and can be credited as popularizing a groove that would be heard in numerous pop and rock styles to this day. The outro also features the answering drum fills heard in There's a Place and Early Takes of Misery. Originally, the song faded on the OO refrain, 
but after the first take, it was decided that there needed to be something extra at the end of the tune. The solution was to have Ringo alternate drum fills with the vocal O's on the outro, but this would prove to be more difficult and frustrating than it initially seemed. On the session tape before take two, Lennon tells Starr to just fill it however you can, Ringo. This vague direction obviously disturbs the drummer, and he responds with a sarcastic, thanks. This lack of focus would cause some difficulty over the next two full takes. Takes four, five, and six, while complete, did not have an acceptable ending, and therefore an edit piece had to be performed. But the problem was not in the drum part, where John and Paul plays the blame, but in the vocals. On the first round of O's, McCartney misses the third one. On the second round, Lennon anticipates the beat rather than hitting it on the one, which causes McCartney to scream. These mistakes, rather than sloppy drum work, were the cause for an edit piece. When the rhythm track is soloed, Starr's fills, while slightly ahead of the beat, don't seem to warrant additional takes. Had the vocals been correct, they would have probably not needed seven takes of an edit piece. A sense of frustration begins to be heard in Lennon and McCartney's voices, and would eventually get worse with the recording of the next song, the original version of One After 909. Thank You Girl marks the first instance of a Beatle attending a separate overdub session. On March 13th, John Lennon entered EMI Studios to overdub a harmonic part, with a cold so severe that he missed shows on the 12th, 13th, 14th, and 15th. Not so severe that he wouldn't be seen on the 12th in a bar in Liverpool by Cavern Club bouncer Paddy Delaney. One night I walked into a club in Liverpool called the Blue Angel, which belonged to Alan Williams. It was on my way home from the cavern, so I often popped in for a drink. As I went in, I saw John's back at the bar. He was sitting on a stool, and I knew immediately it was him because he was wearing a light blue mohair jacket. He never wore anything else. And there was this mop of blonde hair. The thing was, he was supposed to be in Bedford on the Beatles' first big tour of the country. He told me, it's like a cemetery and I've had enough, so I decided to come back to Liverpool. He insisted we drink whiskey after whiskey, and we didn't leave the club until 20 past 4 in the morning. By then, I was falling around and seeing two of everything. That was bad enough, but poor old John had to get himself to York in that state for the next stage of the tour. John actually needed to be in London for this 10 a.m. session, so Patty's memory might be of another evening. Regardless, the Beatles performed as a trio for these shows, with the American artists Tommy Rowe and Chris Montez. Lennon's harmonica overdubs were numbered 14 through 28, with takes 17, 20, 21, and 23 being superimposed over the edit of takes 6 and 13 of the backing track. These overdubs would end up creating very different mixes between the mono and stereo versions. In 1963, mono was king, and stereo mixes were not considered as important for pop music. Most people didn't have equipment to listen to music in stereo, and most hi-fi aficionados listened to predominantly jazz and classical. Pop songs were heard on the radio, which only broadcasted in mono, or on a home gramophone, or in the case of the Beatles records, on portable record players found in most teenagers' bedrooms. Therefore, more time is put into the mono mixes than the stereo ones. In the case of Thank You Girl, two very different mixes were created by George Martin and Norman Smith after Lennon overdubbed his harmonic part. On the mono version, the harmonica is only heard three times, each time the intro is played. The stereo mix has three additional licks, two during the bridge and one at the very end of the song. These parts add a lot, sonically filling in some otherwise blank spots. Another difference occurs at 137. On the stereo version, the harmonica enters before the downbeat, whereas the harmonica on the mono version enters on the one. The stereo mix was the one released in the U.S. on the extremely popular The Beatles' second album and this would be the version that American fans would come to know, even if they bought the mono version of the LP. It was common for Capitol Records to use the stereo mixes to create mono versions rather than use true mono mixes. 
so all versions in America, included the additional harmonica parts. Capital also made it a habit to add reverb to the mixes that were sent to them to create what they thought was a fuller sound. Although the resulting mix is a bit murky, in this case, it does make the drums and guitar sound bigger than the original mix heard on the UK single. Speaking of reverb, an interesting production technique used by Martin and Smith on Thank You Girl was to drench the outro vocals in reverb. Although initially employed to blend the song with the edit piece, it shows a very early sign of things to come. In later years, it would become commonplace to use different vocal effects on different sections to change the feel throughout the song. But in 1963, this was an innovative move. Okay. Thank you, little girl. Take
free play, but he's doing. Take ten, same edit piece. To keep him on the beat. Same one. G. No, do G, the G one. Come. Side of the Beatles' eighth single was primarily written by McCartney, with lyrical assistance by Lennon, who also helped with the B section. McCartney elaborated on the composition of She's a Woman. I have a recollection of walking around St. John's Wood with that in my mind, so I might have written it at home and finished it up on the way to the studio, finally polishing it in the studio. The lyrics were actually finished in the studio, which the Beatles discussed during a BBC radio show in 64, explaining the haste in which the rubbishy lyrics were composed. Lennon spoke of it again in a 1980 interview. We had one verse and we had to finish it off quickly. That's why it's got such rubbishy lyrics. That's Paul with some contribution from me on lines, probably. We put in the words, turns me on. We were so excited to say, turn me on, you know, about marijuana and all that, using it as an expression. The influence of Little Richard, Ray Charles, and the blues feel in general is apparent on She's a Woman, and McCartney elaborated on this. Like Can't Buy Me Love, this was my attempt at a bluesy thing. We always found it very hard to write the more rock and roll things. It seemed easy for Little Richard to knock him off, penny a dozen, but for us it wasn't quite so easy, being white boys who'd not been to a gospel church in our lives. So instead of doing a Little Richard song, whom I admire greatly, I would use the style I would have used for that, but put it in one of my own songs. So this was about a woman rather than a girl. Bluesy melody is quite hard to write, so I was quite pleased to get that. 
The group recorded seven takes of She's a Woman on October 8, 1964, ten days before its A-side, I Feel Fine. While McCartney, Lennon, and Starr are heard on every take of the song, Harrison didn't contribute to the backing tracks. Some even believe that McCartney overdubbed the lead guitar break himself, but the playing style is more like Harrison, and during the recording of I Feel Fine, he can be heard playing that part. Take one is quite different from the other takes, because Lennon's syncopated guitar part still wasn't part of the mix. At this point, he was still experimenting with different rhythmic styles, including one that was quite similar to what Harrison played on Eight Days a Week, recorded at their last session two days earlier. By take two, Lennon began to settle on a part as Starr continued to search for the right groove. By take six, they had found the pocket, and this was the take on which piano, played by McCartney, lead guitar, presumably played by Harrison, double-tracked rhythm guitar by Lennon, double-tracked vocals by McCartney, and Chocalo, a metal shaker played by Starr, were overdubbed. They recorded one more take lasting nearly six minutes that prompted Ringo to state, we got a song and an instrumental there. She's a woman, take one. Present. 
I know that she's no peasant Only ever has to give me love forever And forever my love don't give me present Turn me on when I get lonely People tell me that she's only fooling I know she isn't
She's a woman who understands. She's a woman who loves a man. My love don't give me presents. I know that she's no peasant. Only ever has to give me love forever and forever. My love don't give me presents.
She's a woman. Take five, is it? Take seven. She's 
that's it for this week, Beatles fans. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, Volume 1, 1962-1963, and the Steely Dan FAQ. Tune in to check out more deconstructed mixes of classic Beatle tracks, live cuts, solo tunes, and much, much more. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter, ShadyBearBKLYN, and like the pages for I Want to Tell You and the Steely Dan FAQ. And look out for the forthcoming CD release of the Steely Dan Sessions, interpretations of unrealized classics. And if you're in the New York Tri-State area, come by the Bitter End on Friday, June 30th at 7 p.m. for a CD book release party for the Steely Dan Sessions and the Steely Dan FAQ. See you next time.